And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. At the time of recording the podcast, there was still a huge discussion about whether England, Germany, the Netherlands, and other European nations were actually going to be wearing the One Love armbands. Well, since earlier, a statement from the FA has read that FIFA has been very clear that it will impose sporting sanctions if our captains wear the armbands on the field of play. As national federations, we can't put our players in a position where they could face sporting sanctions, including bookings. So we have asked the captains not to attempt to wear the armbands in FIFA World Cup games. It's a huge U-turn from England, who intended to do it, Uh, from Germany and from the Netherlands and from some other European nations. This is the discussion that we had earlier on about the issue prior to the decision being made. Day two of the World Cup here in Qatar and we are up and running, perhaps not for the hosts on the pitch after that opening defeat to Ecuador. We had the monarch of Qatar and the king of FIFA, Gianni Infantino declaring the tournament open at the Albayt Stadium as the great and the good, including David Beckham, watched on. We'll discuss the issues on and off the field as England, the US and Wales start their tournament. I'm Adam Leventhal and this is The Athletic Football Podcast. Mercedes cross. Oh, fabulous header. He's done it again out of Valencia. So with me today on our rooftop location is the Athletics' Adam Crafton and the well-travelled Laurie Whitwell, uh, just to share their thoughts on what we've seen and we've heard so far. Uh, Laurie, I will, I'll give you the floor to start off with, seeing as the journey that you've had is, well, it's just far more involved than, than Adam, who just jumped on a plane. Um, from your point of view, you've come a long way. In, in a sort of shortish journey, I, I won't expect you to go through the full 3,000 odd miles. What was that adventure like for you? And if people aren't aware of it, just, just give us a little insight into what you've done. Yeah, I'll try and be quick because it could go on forever. <laughs> um, we went from England, St. George's Park, where we started, Cardiff, uh, Paris, Amsterdam, keep, keep on going and going and going through all the different countries in Europe and stopping off at different locations that had kind of football resonance and particularly World Cup significance. Uh, 17 countries in the end, I think 5,600 miles. Nick Miller, my colleague, my uh, partner in crime, uh, I totted it up as. And yeah, then we came here. The idea was to, to kind of get a people's sense of the World Cup, what it meant to them generally, but also this one in Qatar specifically. You know, are we in an echo chamber over in England or in Europe? And, and once we got to the Middle East, uh, particularly with Turkey and then uh, with Jordan in Amman, uh, we played football on a square uh, and we just had a, a really nice kickabout and the kind of football pureness was, was there. Are we 
uh, having a view of this tournament that's unfair um, is a wider appreciation to be had. So you've gone through a sort of spiritual journey <laughs> into into football and sort of love and passion and <laughs> discovery and all that sort of stuff. Adam, you're sat here in Qatar at a World Cup that if you were at the, the opening ceremony uh, yesterday, from my own point of view, felt like you were sort of living in a in a bad dream to a certain degree. The fact that it it had happened. And I'm not being unfair. Well, it sounds like I am. I'm not being unfair on, on the Qataris that were there enjoying the, the ceremony and things like that. But it just felt like, right, this, this has happened. And you just added up all the, the story that has got us to this point and some of the off the field issues. And you just thought, okay, right. We just have to sort of lump it almost, but ensure that we, we focus on the, the issues off the field. How are you feeling about it? Sat here looking out at the skyline at the moment. Yeah, it's warm, isn't it? Um, it's probably, well, I think already this morning, it's probably 27, 28. It'll go up to, th to early 30s uh, by the time England are playing this afternoon. Um, we had our own spiritual journey here on Qatar Airways uh, to fly over, to fly, to fly over. Um, I think it was actually on the plane that I kind of got a taste in some ways of what was going to come because I think I actually tweeted this. There was this video, as soon as you got on the plane, you start looking through your what films there are, what, what entertainment there is, what's on TV, on the plane. It might have been different in first class to what I was used to <laughs> in economy, but carry on. And uh, one, of the, one of the first documentaries you see, well, there's two. One was uh, introducing Gianni Infantino, which was like a 15-minute documentary in which Gianni Infantino just talks about himself, um, <laughs> his childhood. Um, and you're like, this is really strange. This is a really strange thing. For the, if you're coming from anywhere across the world on Qatar Airways, that this guy who's not Qatari, um, although he was defining as Arab uh, for half the day on, on Saturday during his speech, is kind of like the face of this, of, of this tournament. When, if I'm coming to Qatar, I want to hear from Qatari people. And that's been, of all the things, you know, of all the questions around the off-field stuff over the last few days, I've been really kind of disappointed by how few Qataris are actually now speaking publicly. We've not heard from any of them. They don't, it's, like, it's like they've got the tournament and, and for whether it's, whether it's because they're feeling bruised um, by everything that's gone on and all the criticism, it's just as if they've gone into retreat. I think that's a massive shame because if we want to apply balance to this tournament, we need to hear from them. I bumped into a, a Qatari politician. I mean, obviously we know that it's a monarchy um, here and there isn't necessarily any elected parliamentarians but this is what he said after the game yesterday and it it follows a theme my name is muhammad yusulmana i am qatari and either a parliament elected member and i am proud of my country and I, we are proud that arab they can do something and we have everybody in our country that's it is kind of victory so that was a, a local view Laurie, from your point of view, you know, you were sat just two, two um, seats alongside me with Nick Miller sandwiched in between, uh, watching the, the opening ceremony. Just give us your little critique of, of what you saw and how it felt. Yeah, um, I had a little uh, mad entrance to the ceremony because I forgot to print my ticket off uh, yeah. two hours before. So I had yeah, to same say, so, yeah, yeah, I did. So <laughs> warning to everybody, print your ticket off. Um, but I, I came out just as... Uh, Morgan Freeman was on stage uh, with the 
ambassador, the Qatari ambassador who uh, is disabled, you know, who uh, has a spinal deformity. And I thought that was quite an arresting image. Um, then, we, then we had Jenny Infantino again doing a speech. Uh, I mean, uh, the documentary that Adam mentioned, I actually watched it on the flight that I had over here because we, we had a flight eventually. We, we had to. We couldn't go via land, you know, through Syria or Iraq. That would have been uh, a bit too dangerous. But um, and I kind of I wanted to watch because I thought, well, what, what's this then? Just to kind of get myself a, a wider recognition. And it gave me a sense of the delusion that is was then present in his speech that went on and on and on. Um, and because it, it was all about himself. And I think that's what the speech at the end of the opening ceremony was about, positioning himself front and centre. This is my World Cup to open. It can't start until I've had this word, uh, which is kind of you know crazy, really. You know, he's FIFA president. He's not, you know, a, a dictator that's um, welcoming us to his, his country. If you haven't heard the, um, the podcast from day one, it's worth going back and listening to Matt Slater speaking about that speech, obviously um, not at the opening ceremony yesterday, uh, where he did switch from Arabic into Spanish and Italian and then obviously into, into English, Gianni Infantino. But it's worth just checking out Matt Slater's view on it. And he's, I think he's licking his lips at maybe trying to get his teeth into Infantino at some stage during this tournament. Adam, from your point of view, it was interesting seeing amongst the great and the good. We saw David Beckham, for example, at the game. We saw the, the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, sat alongside Infantino uh, and the Emir of, of Qatar. From, from your sort of stance, how is this feeling politically at the moment in terms of the, the messaging of the, of the Middle East, ultimately, in, in terms of FIFA standing? Well, it's extraordinary because now that the World Cup is here in 2022, we're getting this, this huge messaging about this huge unity of the Arab world. What a moment for the Arab world. And I don't know how many people have followed this for the last few years. Half the Arab world spent the last few years trying to get this World Cup away from Qatar, yeah. right? Like, there's huge issues between Qatar and Saudi and, and Bahrain, uh, UAE over the last few years. There was a, this blockade of Qatar for several years um, at the end of the decade. And you know, that was one of the reasons why, for example, the Newcastle takeover took so long to happen because uh, the Qataris were accusing the Saudis of pirating their sports content. Um, and then the World Cup comes along and you have um, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, Crown Prince of Saudi, sat next to Infantino. On the other side, you have the Emir. There's a broader context to it in terms of the 2030 World Cup as well, um, because we, I don't think it's yet been confirmed, the, the final bids, but Saudi Arabia, Greece, and Egypt logically are coming together to, host, to try and host that World Cup. The rival bids, as far as we know them, are uh, the, a kind of joint South American bid of Uruguay, Argentina, Paraguay, Chile. Um, which would be 100 years on from 1930 in um, Uruguay. And then there's also Spain, Portugal, Ukraine, which is kind of the outsider um, at this point. So I think it was, it was significant yesterday, perhaps, one in showing that the Arab world is now very, very united, um, at least in its messaging. And I think two for MBS to be sitting next to Infantino. I think that's the second World Cup in a row for the first game that he's actually sat next to MBS because Russia played Saudi Arabia last time. So that was that iconic, iconic, terrifying image. Dystopian. Yeah, image of uh, MBS, Putin and Infantino together, which is kind of just Infantino at his most happy self, you know, 
between world leaders uh, feeling very important. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. On that issue of, of Russia, guess who I bumped into after the game yesterday? It was uh, Alexei Sorokin, who was the man behind the uh, Russia bid. Uh, you may remember him being quite prominent if you were watching you know, Sky Sports News and things like that. He was very vocal about winning the bid and then during the, the Russia World Cup. And I'll be brutally honest, I was, I was quite shocked to see him there being a Russian on the ground uh, here in Qatar. But he explained exactly um, how strong that partnership has actually been. Oh, it's, a, it's an historic day, clearly, because we, uh, I felt the same emotions that I kind of felt four years ago when starting a, a World Cup in our country. Uh, it's, a, it's a big day for Qatar. They've been preparing a lot. They've spent a lot of efforts, a lot of investments in preparing this World Cup, and it's It'd certainly be a major milestone in their history. How much involvement were you able to to have in, in helping Qatar get ready for this tournament? Well, my colleagues and I have been doing some consultancy uh, for the Supreme Committee, uh, trying to respond to certain uh, issues in preparation of the host country. That included uh, transport, fan experience, uh, overall preparedness to the event. But there are a lot of uh, lot of Russians working in both Qatar 2022 and the uh, Supreme Committee, so it's a, it's a good legacy for us that our experience did not, did not uh, fall into an abyss, but was used here. And from your point of view, obviously, with the broader political situation at the moment, is it, is it a difficult situation for you to, to be here? Do you feel that you should be here, personally? I think our national team should be here. That's that's for sure. I think uh, they would do great, and uh, we had a chance to pass through qualifications. We could have been here. So it's a sad, it's sad that it turned out this way. But do you understand why why they're not? Yes, because the decision by the governing body was made. That's why. But do you understand it? Do you feel? Can you see the reason why? Well, as a FIFA. Exco member, I do not discuss decisions made by FIFA. It would be 
a little inappropriate and unethical. So Sorokin, being very open, and he always has been actually quite accessible, which is rather surprising for, for a Russian, even you know, back in, in 2018, but, but now as well. He obviously didn't feel that there was any awkwardness him being there. Um, he also didn't feel that Russia should not be at this World Cup, which is obviously what he would say. But he also you know, stuck a flag in the fact that they have worked in partnership, that the Russians and, and Qataris. And, and that's you know, if you, on the list of discomfort of this World Cup. I, I would put that quite high, actually. Yeah, I think you have to balance it with this is the first time Qatar have done a World Cup, so they've always been looking for, I suppose, expertise from people who have previously organised tournaments, and Russia organised the last tournament. So I do, think it's, I do think it's quite normal that they would look to the last tournament for any lessons that were learned, anything that they could take away from it. Well, you know, when you, and, and obviously, it's not been as bad as what we've seen this year from Russia. Um, obviously, it's still not been great there. Now, the interesting thing with Qatar and Russia is I remember being with some pretty senior Qatari people around the World Cup not that long after Russia invaded Ukraine. And all the discussion had been FIFA had banned, well, in the end, had banned Russia from this World Cup. But if you remember, they, did, they weren't going to do that originally. What they wanted to do was this kind of fudged compromise where you change the name of the country, you get them to play in a different kit but the players and the managers... Very Olympic, Olympic style, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly, but everyone still comes along and we just don't call them Russia. Um, eventually, they were forced out of that because the, the, they were, Russia were meant to play Poland in the World Cup qualifier and the Polish just refused to play. They were just saying, we are not going to play against them. And that's kind of what forced them into it. However, um, what I do remember is speaking to some Qataris at the time who were very, very conscious about this idea of Russia being kicked out of their World Cup because they were saying, you know, no, nobody here wants countries to be invaded and wants wars to be going on. But their argument was, this is not our war, right? This is, and we don't want the, Arab, the first Arab World Cup to be like a stage for Western triumphalism, right? And for the US and the UK to come here, make it all about themselves and have Russia isolated from the Arab world. And actually, if you, if you track politically what's been going on in terms of the relationship between the Gulf states, uh, the Russia and, and the US and Ukraine over the last few months, there's been this kind of hedged position in a lot of ways where the, the Gulf states are trying to maintain relationships with Russia. They're not doing the sanctions in the same way as we've seen in the West. So I do get it a little bit from the Qatari point of view. You know, this is, they're saying, you know, this is, obviously they've gone along with it because they have no choice because it's FIFA's rules. But I don't think everyone here is as comfortable with it as we might presume. That's the Qatari view, obviously. But then I think from a, from a global view, it does still... Right, but that's, the, feel. but that's the tension of this whole tournament, yeah. right? What's the Qatari view? What's the global view? But this is, a, this is a global tournament, and that's what I suppose people are, are forgetting, right? Well, that's where we're at now with football, right? It's, it's moved beyond the kind of, you know, the allegations of, of executives being able to be bought and you know, proven allegations in, in, in certain parts. Uh, it's now moved on to a kind of geopolitical scale where yeah. Jenny Infantino, as, as Adam says, is absolutely in his element in between these like massive world leaders. Uh, and it is quite 
shocking when you think back to the fact that he was sat next to Vladimir Putin, couldn't get closer to him, you know, rubbed up to him. 2018 World Cup will engage with you and that will make Russia more open and, and kind of transparent. And people that were at Russia say it was a, a very welcoming World Cup and they enjoyed it. But then they went and invaded Ukraine. So it's not like that strategy has worked for the global good, which is what Infantino tries to claim football can do. Yeah, and he held, he held the ball up at his... Uh initial press conference didn't he and said that this is our only weapon yeah and it's interesting you know it's not it's not just us talking about russia out here there's a lot of noise from qataris around well why weren't you treating russia the way that you were treating us right why are you when that world cup was going on why are we getting so much more shit is their argument than what russia had to put up with and on i think on on one hand you know that's because Basically, people don't want to make the same mistake again um, in terms of the way that things were covered. I think, on the other hand, there probably is a little bit of people never wanted it here and people aren't prepared to see anything positive whatsoever about, about, this, about this tournament being here. I suppose it's more striking being here and you know, seeing it established to a certain degree. I mean, obviously, it's very much a, a building site in places still. It's still very much under construction and we know the issues related to the migrant workers. And, you know, we heard from Simon Hughes yesterday on the, on the podcast. But I, on that point of should it be here, when you then look on the field and you look at that Qatari side who looked completely out of their depth, you did just think, right, well, this is the smallest country, wherever it is, to ever hold a, a World Cup. And is that necessarily a good thing? Yes, you have to grow the game. And yes, there is no reason why the Middle East shouldn't have a World Cup. It is, as we just said, a global game. Well, look at Morocco. They've tried twice, I think, to host a World Cup recently. That would be, uh, I think that'd be a wonderful World Cup in the Arab world where people would go and experience a, a real rich culture of a football heritage. I mean, we're here. There isn't a football heritage, is there? You know, it's, 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 they've got the World Cup and then they've had to... I suppose they were kind of doing it beforehand, but the Aspire Academy where they were, you know, creating these footballers and, and, and having them all together for so many years. And then more recently, they've been together for you know, six months, I think, you know, training and working for that very moment. And then they perform like that. It's, it's probably unfair to be so critical of them because, you know, I guess that's it's a small pool, you know, although there are obviously people in the team that haven't been born in Qatar. So you, then you see the scenes where the, the, the crowd is basically half empty 50 minutes into the game. Loads of people didn't come back after half time and and is that a sign? this is your first world cup ever and uh, and it's your first opening game it should be celebration there was you know it's very packed outside before the game there's traffic jams there's you know, a good atmosphere i felt like you know people walking towards the ground um but then it's it's you know it's empty it's kind of like oh well we've we've, we've seen what we all we need to say this this is not for me is that really what the world cup should be about and then we've still got the question of, of those ultras that came sort of 10 minutes before the game um and kind of filled up that area and, and then you know had the noise they, they were the ones making racket you know it was very choreographed well that, exactly, wasn't it? exactly. We, we, we need to know the full story there because what what is the background there there's, there's not that kind of fan culture in qatar so but to be fair let's be brutally honest at Old Trafford, they tried to do something quite similar, didn't they, to, to get the singing section going. It happens in England, so we shouldn't really be surprised. Um, let's focus on, on England now. Um, and we'll deal with the, the, the footballing side, but also the non-football side, which obviously they, they diverge. They're up against um, Iran today. This is what Gareth Southgate said about what his players are going to be doing before the game kicks off. We have discuss taking the knee we feel we should 
Um, we, it's what we stand for as a team and have done for a long period of time. Of course, we understand in the Premier League that the clubs have decided to only do that for certain games, big occasions. We feel this is the biggest and um, we think it's a strong statement that will go around the world for young people in particular to see that inclusivity is, is very important. There is also the issue of the, the One Love armband uh, situation. J just give us a, an understanding of exactly what's, what's going on there right, right now as we know it. So around, what was it, six or seven weeks ago now, maybe it was less, maybe it was more, I've completely lost track of time out here. Um, <laughs> You've been having so much fun. So exactly. Yeah. Uh, the several European FAs came together. It wasn't the entire all of the European nations, but a few of them. I think it was the Dutch FA, German FA, English FA, Welsh FA, and a few others. Um, and came up. They must have had a lot of meetings and came up with this idea of a one love armband. Um, and there's a kind of design that is colourful. It's not when you look at it, you wouldn't see a rainbow. You wouldn't see kind of. You know, if you were thinking, for example, what you might see during Rainbow Laces Week in the Premier League, it's not that. It's a, it's a different design. There's also an anti... They're calling it an anti-discrimination armband rather than specifically like a gay rights, anti-LGBT, uh, sorry, pro-LGBT um, armband. And I think part of that, I was on a call last week where it was explained there's like a pan-African element to that in terms of anti-discrimination as well. So... All the last few weeks, we've been told they're going to wear this armband, they're going to wear this armband, they're prepared to take a fine if necessary because FIFA... Um, I don't think it's that FIFA don't want it to be worn. Um, and obviously, the context of this is that you know, homosexuality in Qatar is, is criminalized, but FIFA don't like things to be worn unless it's their idea, I think, is a, is a broad part of it, and also they don't like to offend their hosts. Right, so I think that's, be, that's basically what's been going on. And they've come up with a whole array of armbands. Yeah, so this became complicated, I think, on Saturday when FIFA decided to come up with their own schedule of armbands, almost like armband rivals. Um, where Levels in a computer game where if you progress, you get to wear the next armband. It, exactly, so I think an array of different slogans and uh, kind of vagaries around inclusion that would go onto these armbands. But does it, does it feel, from your point of view, this is just literally ticking box exercise of yes we'll we'll do this thing that you think is important from from fifa's point of view because it certainly does from from where i'm sitting yeah but i, f I feel the same about the english fa yeah. point of view because they've come up with an armband that yeah i, I just i was going to say i was on this call last week with an lgbtq human rights coalition and there was a lots lots of different people different i suppose stakeholders from football on that so there was the former premier league player Tom, thomas hitzelsberger who's gay and there was a lot of different fan groups and there was nobody on that call, um, there's probably eight or nine panelists who were, all, who were all defining as LGBT, who was happy with the, with the armband that was being offered by the English FA. And really, there's very few places that have actually communicated that. You know, if you, if you go around most of the media reporting today, a lot of it is how brave the English FA are in, standing up, in potentially standing up to FIFA. When the reality of what is happening today is that we had a commitment from the English FA to wear an armband that is a pretty meek gesture in that it actually doesn't really define what it is. It's not a rainbow armband. Um, and they're now considering abandoning that because they've discovered on the eve of the game that there may be uh, sanctions that go beyond a fine and there could even be sporting sanctions. Now, 
as far as I know, in terms of all the discussions I've had with various different FAs over the last few days, in kind of prep meetings for the games this week, there hasn't been any direct uh, conversation where FIFA have said you could get a yellow card if you wear this armband. I think what's happened is somebody in a German newspaper in Bild has gone through the rule book and seen, oh, there is a potential worst-case scenario consequence where if you were to do this, FIFA could, in theory, hand out a yellow card. And what will happen when the referee does his pre-match check of equipment he will check for anything that is not normally worn during a FIFA World Cup match. One of those things is, in theory, that armband. At that point, he, the referee, he or she, that referee would have to take a decision about whether to inform FIFA that there is something that's not in keeping with, with the equipment. And therefore, a disciplinary case opens automatically, then it goes up the ladder, and then we'd get stories about FIFA is investigating the English FA, when really it's kind of like a, a lot of procedures that are taking place. The only thing that I know has been communicated to some of these FAs is that they will be fined. And I put that on FIFA last night. They didn't reply to me, um, but that's basically a theme of the last few months. Um, and so I think that's where, where it's at. I think a fine is more likely. I might look really stupid when this goes out and in a few hours' time if, if yellow cards start being handed out. But I think... I think what might be happening is the English FA quite like this scenario where they're really starting to paint it as we're getting all these threats, they're going to fine us, they might book us and we're still going to wear it and we're so brave in doing so. When really, they're likely to get a fine and that's, that's the number of it. And honestly, if the worst thing that's ever going to happen to you is a yellow card, try being gay out here, see what happens to you. I just wanted to get your, your thoughts on the couple of campaigns. I'll come to you, Laurie, on, on, um, on the Iranian issue, because we've seen a, one comedian, Ahmed Jalili, uh, talking about that issue and almost urging England players to, to do something. We've had the LGBT issue. We've had Joe Lycett um, sort of urging David Beckham to, to pull out of the, his involvement with, with the World Cup. It is transcending sport into wider culture isn't it which is of benefit to a certain degree even though we we don't know about what the England players are going to do but David Beckham certainly didn't engage with with Lysett's campaign did he? No and I think it's you know that Joe Lysett campaign has had a big impact on social media it's I don't think there's anyone out here talking about it. Um, Hang on a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Apart from from us but I don't think you know I don't think it's a discussion amongst Qatari people and the people who were attending this no. World, World Cup. Um, I think most of the discussion yesterday, even in the UK, was kind of became less about the issue and more about is it moral for him to cut up £10,000, right? That's the way the conversation seems to move yesterday. Equally, um, I, I, I saw the, um, the British politician, Nadine Doris, describe she actually said it's nothing more than a publicity stunt and I was like yeah well you're sharp aren't you that's exactly what it is right (laughs) it is it is a publicity stunt to try and raise attention and and actually it's worked pretty well I mean the cut through of it has been huge let's talk about the uh, Ahmed Jalili campaign basically he has gone on social media in a similar way to, to Joe Lysett urging the players to when they score if you just make this one simple statement of like hair snip 
that sends a huge message to the women and girls of Iran. Obviously, we don't know what's going to happen in the in the game, and we will reflect on that in in the next podcast. But do you feel that the Iranian issue is is getting as much attention as it should be? Probably not, because there's so many issues with the Qatari. Yeah. Um, yeah, fact that we're here, uh, and I guess that takes precedence because it's it's happening. We, we can see it. We'll, I suppose, we'll get onto Iran, uh, the wider world, or whoever wants to talk about it once their their game starts. Because the whole point, I suppose, has been they should be boycotting it or they should be kicked out because of what's happening in Iran. Um, whereas actually, once they start kicking a football, then it becomes more real. Carlos Queiroz has obviously had to answer a lot of questions on it, or you know certainly he began to um, and I think yeah once once you actually see the players out on the pitch and you go okay this is a this is a, a team representing a country where there's huge protests and and you know social injustices going on of the gravest kind then I think it'll really hit home you know what another major element of this World Cup that feels unsettling and, and feels you know questionable um, I mean it would take a brave brave footballer from another country to kind of do that gesture, um, even though it is just a gesture, as Adam says, I mean, what would what would be the worst that would happen from it from from a player's point of view? But it's it's quite hard, I think, to throw yourself into that that kind of dynamic when I don't know you'd have to read up on it and be prepared for the backlash that would inevitably come uh, from from certain quarters. Well, Alex Abnos, the managing editor for US Soccer at the Athletic, has joined us just to look ahead to the USA men's national team's opening game against Wales. Is there, is there a feeling of optimism going into the game, Alex? Yeah, I don't know if I would say necessarily optimism. I think certainly the players and the coaches are very optimistic about, about their chances in this tournament. I think it's more for the general feeling for everybody is excitement. You know, it's been eight years, more than eight years a little bit, than, uh, since the U.S. has played in a men's World Cup game. Um, the last one, you know, ended with... <laughs> you know, an incredible performance by, by Tim Howard and a team that I think a lot of people felt could have gone a little bit farther. We've been waiting to get back to the World Cup for a long time, so everybody's very excited to be back. But, like, there are some real questions about this team. They're very, very young. They're very inexperienced. They've, they've never been here. There's only one player on the team that has ever played at the World Cup before. It's DeAndre Yedlin. So, you know, I think that there are certainly questions about how how well this team can rise to the occasion but overall i think everybody's just super excited and and eager to find out answers to the questions that we've been asking about the team the program soccer in the united states writ large for uh over four years now and so much analysis in england in particular on on the manager gareth southgate how much attention does greg Bahalter get in terms of what he does how he operates because he's quite a, a cool calm cookie isn't he yeah yeah he he gets quite a bit i i think u.s fans generally fall into two camps this is very general and that is people that believe in players that play in mls and people that think mls playing in mls should be like automatically disqualifying for playing for the national team and that divide has increased quite a bit in recent years because we have so many players that are playing at the types of clubs where we've never seen Americans play before. Uh, you know, you can think of the names off the top of your head. Weston McKinney at Juventus, Christian Pulisic at, uh, at Chelsea, and now Sergio Dess at Barcelona, and then AC Milan. Like, those, those are crazy clubs that where we never see players before. But you also have the likes of Walker Zimmerman on the squad from Nashville SC, Aaron Long. Those are, are likely center backs, and they're both MLS players. Um, so 
the coach is sort of at the center of that because he's responsible for picking the players. And Greg Berhalter gets criticized, in my opinion, unfairly from sections of the fan base for calling in too many MLS players or using, you know, too many of them. I think that those concerns are a little bit overstated. I think you're always going to have MLS players in, in a U.S. national team. And I don't think the, I don't think they're it's not as if they're relying on them to like be game breakers in this. In terms of on field stuff, uh, I think he gets criticism sometimes for sticking a little bit too much with a system that might not suit the players that he has. Um, Sounds familiar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but by the same token, he is a coach that has sort of evolved into the role. I think he's changed the way he has set up his team over time. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say he's beloved or the best U.S. men's national team manager ever, but... He's been decent, and he, you know, I'm I'm very very interested to see to what degree he's able to adjust uh, game to game and within games in a tournament like a World Cup that's so compressed. And there are so many subplots to that fixture with with Wales and the USA. Obviously, Gareth Bale playing in the States at the moment, and he's always good value, isn't he? When when he speaks, he's got that dry sense about him in everything he says and he knows even now it's starting to crank it up against not only the USA but against England which will be that final group game yeah he loves this kind of environment and I remember we covered I covered Wales at Euro 2016 and he, he went did the press like every other day basically and which is rare for a player of that stature uh, to, to do so but he he was absolutely in his element and I think he felt that he needed to shoulder the burden of the focus, given it was Wales' first tournament for, for so many years, and obviously this is their first tournament, this World Cup tournament since 1958. So he's 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 out there cranking it up and, and basically repeating what he said in 2016, where he said, you know, the Welsh have got more passion than England, uh, which stirred a few things at the time. And I, I guess, you know, it might well do so again. Um, I, I, he's coming from it. I think he wants to show massive fidelity to the, to the Welsh nation. You know, he is you know, from Wales, he's from Cardiff, and, and there was that, good story about how his agent once said to him you know you could represent England because of the heritage and it was a, a one second conversation where he said no chance so he uh, he absolutely loves this kind of environment and it's you know it'll be I think it's a great thing that a player with Gareth Bale's ability and and kind of national pride is at a tournament like this um, it's a it's a really nice platform and yeah we'll see um, I, I agree with you that each game for England has a little bit of a jeopardy to it because the opposition have got something to play for against England. They've got a real motivation there. And at a World Cup tournament, that can often be a defining factor. And we have no idea how good England are yeah. at this point, do we? You know, after the, after the last six months, like we just have no idea <laughs> whether it's going to be the pattern of the last six months or whether it's going to be the tournament version of England. Um, so, yeah, I would think that those in the group probably fancy it. On tomorrow's podcast, I'll be reflecting on uh, going to the game in between, which is Senegal against Netherlands, which... That's feels, the best game of the day. It does feel that's, like... That's the most World cup game is, of the day, isn't it? By a mile. Yeah, it, it should be fantastic. Obviously, Senegal, that big blow of, of not having Sadio Mane in the side. And I mean, it, it's, the, it's the nature of the beast with Panini sticker books and things like that, but also a massive building here in Qatar, that uh, in Doha with Sadio Mane on the side of it. And I noticed also Cristiano Ronaldo's one has, is, is half come down as well, which I thought was quite sort of symbolic. <laughs> well, well we, we went for dinner the other night uh, around the corner from the hotel. And as you go in, there's this almost like montage canvas 
of famous of, of famous players. There was like Maradona, there was Pele, there was Ronaldo. And I think Ronaldo, if he discovers it while he's out here, <laughs> he would not this, be this, this drawing painting of him, he basically has a pot belly <laughs> in, this, in this photo. Um, and uh, yeah, I think if we can keep him away from this, from this specific restaurant, it might be in, uh, in his interest, because if not, there might be another Piers Morgan interview that comes out of it. <laughs> it's very true, very true. Just one final point from you, Adam. We are about to step in. and we've, We obviously had that opening game, Qatar-Ecuador, but we're about to step into the next phase of, of, of the tournament, whereby we are expecting the footballing narrative to take over. As a, as a, um, a media representative, how conscious are you of, of sticking to what a lot of people have said already, is that we, can't, we will continue to raise issues, we will continue to talk about the other issues, or do you think that people will become tired of it. People will become tired of listening to it. How do you counter that? I think some people already are. Um, you know, so if you go off social media yesterday, a lot of people don't want to hear about it anymore. They want to just enjoy their football for a few weeks. Um, yeah, I think we've always been pretty clear. Like We'll report what's happening. And what's happening is a load of football matches. And what's also happening is a load of other conversations. And you can kind of do both at the same time. And people can read what they want and listen to what they want. Because... Um, that's, that's the way the world works. I think the uh, connection will be if we see scenes like we did when fans are leaving the stadium or, or stadiums aren't, aren't, aren't full. That was Qatar, the host nation. If any, if any match is going to be full until the end, it's going to be the opening match where Qatar are playing. You know, Wales-USA later, it's, you know, it's a long way. It's a difficult journey. It's expensive. I've seen quite a few Welsh and USA fans actually uh, knocking about Doha, so maybe that'll be okay. But I just, I wonder about the other matches and, and if we see, you know, scenes of these, you know, stadiums built at massive expense, um, not full, I think that's going to be quite sad. But we saw the incident as well at the fan festival, which was, yeah. which was worrying. And yeah. someone that you travelled with was there, right? Yeah, uh, our security guy, John, um, who's a yeah, really, really good guy. He, he went down to have a look around and uh, it was chaos. He, he said so uh, in what in what way it, it was he sent a video and all you could see was just a mass of people just really close together it was the entrance so he was I guess waiting to perhaps get in um, and then we saw some more footage later on where I think it's open for 40,000 people and 80,000 showed up and it just then became a really distressing scene of, of police having to go in and kind of shepherd people away and perhaps using, you know, not excessive force, but, you know, more force than you'd like to see in it. what is a, supposed to be an enjoyable environment. And is this the kind of, this conflict that I feel in Doha and being in Qatar between the grandeur and then the, the kind of, the, not, not, not grime, just to give it a two Gs, but, you know, the kind of, the, the, the lesser affluent parts of it that, you know, we're perhaps not supposed to see. And that, that, was, a, uh, that was an example of it where, I don't know why it was so over, overcrowded, you know, people just wanting to see the football and, and being in amongst it, people that couldn't get to the matches, I guess. Um, but it's quite worrying if that's the first game and, and that's the kind of flow of it, that you're going to have empty seats in the stadiums and overpacked fan parks. Yeah, we will see how that element of the tournament develops uh, over the coming days. Right, Adam, thank you very much for being here. Laurie uh, as well, great to see you. Um, we're going to be back tomorrow to pick the bones out of today's games, obviously reacting to England in particular, the US as well. Um, we'll look ahead to tomorrow's action and all the other news surrounding the tournament from Qatar. Don't forget for in-depth content and coverage from the tournament, 
uh, stay in touch with The Athletic. There's lots of essential reading, as you would expect, already up there. Uh, check out The Radar as well, uh, which is a huge piece of work on 100 players featured at the tournament. And if you want to be part of it, don't forget, subscribe to The Athletic for £1 a month for 12 months. That's our best offer of this year by going to theathletic.com forward slash football pod. We will be back tomorrow. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.